Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 11. I'm Joshua. I'm Mike. And uh, we're recording without power right now. We had a big uh, windstorm come through yesterday, knocked out a bunch of power around here. Uh, fortunately, it doesn't bother us all that much. Yeah, so, so. it's a bicycle-powered audio recorder. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, you may hear a distant generator in the background. It's not ours, but someone somewhere is generating their own power right now. <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, we've been deep into issue six, uh, putting the design together, getting all those things uh, you know, sorted out, a lot of pictures and all the manuscripts and uh, getting everything just so. Um, and we've also been releasing uh, the table of contents, one article a day on the blog. So we're, I don't know, what, halfway through or something? We're yep. st- each day it's a, a little little recap or a little bit of summary about what this article is going to be about, who it's by, um, what the take-home might be, yep. uh, share a few pictures. So we always like doing it piecemeal and kind of leads up to the, the big release. Yep, and uh, if, if you're a subscriber of the magazine, obviously you don't have to do anything. You will definitely get the next issue. And if you're not, then when... Uh, we open the magazine for pre-orders, then would be the time to just order an individual copy if that's what you're interested in. Or you can subscribe now, yeah, too. Yeah, whenever you want to. You don't have to stay up till midnight to wait, you know, the day before pre-orders just to make sure you get in there. Yep. So February 1st is when the pre-orders open. Yep. And uh, then we'll be on our way. Rolling with so. issue six. Uh, other updates, Joshua and I just got back a few days ago from a trip to Williamsburg, Virginia for the Working Wood in the 18th Century Conference. Uh, the focus year uh, this year was uh, five shops, five traditions. traditions. Yep. Um, so Joshua was sharing about his Fisher research uh, while we were there. It was a great trip. It was uh, really um, eye-opening. There was some great research shared, some great presentations. Um, it was wonderful to meet and meet up with some people that we've um, known, uh, some people who have written for us, in fact, in the past, Bill Pavlak, Marshall Sheets, yeah. uh, and just to make some new connections. Um, that was really great. And, of course, Colonial Williamsburg is a super cool place to, to visit. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing <clears throat> uh, just being able to walk into the, the Anthony Hay shop where uh, the the crew there is working with 18th century uh, inspired tools or, or reproductions of those tools um, and being able to make exact reproductions of exact pieces. It's just re- very, very specific, mm-hmm. um, way more meticulous and picky than, than we work. Right. Um, but <clears throat> it's just really, really cool and inspiring place to be. So we highly recommend visiting the Hay Shop. Yeah. Every time I've been there, uh, I come home and want to find a harpsichord for my home Uh, those are just awesome instruments yeah but the conference was a blast a lot of great people really really uh you know just inspiring people and very sweet uh it's just i'm so uh, honored to be able to be a part of that that was pretty cool Mm. yeah and so in uh in light of that we wanted to talk today a bit about your uh your book on fisher your fisher research how on earth you got sucked into this whole world and um, maybe some of your thoughts and takeaways from it. So yeah, well, and we talked about wanting to do a podcast about Jonathan Fisher. Yeah, who was this guy? This guy from Maine. What's the story with that? 
and you know life is so busy and we never got around to it so yeah. even though he's like occupied the central portion of your life for five years right exactly <laughs> so yeah it seems like a good time to to do it now yeah so tell me a bit about how you fell into the fisher story um well so we live uh on the i live in the blue hill peninsula of of maine so it's mid-coast maine about halfway up right below Bar Harbor. And um, I had been uh, doing furniture conservation and I had a bunch of my clients telling me, oh, hey, you should go to the Jonathan Fisher house in Blue Hill. It's just a few minutes away and you should check that out because there's a bunch of furniture that this guy made and you might like it. You would probably like it. Mm. And, you know, the, this, the skeptic in me, maybe the cynic in me was sort of thinking, well, you know, there's always a lot of furniture that people um, say, my grandfather made this, and then you look at it, and there's some factory label on the underside, and you go, oh. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, you just kind of bite your tongue and just leave it alone. Yeah. Um, So usually our our ideas of attribution are much more uh, charitable than reality would bear out. Everyone has a chair that George Washington sat in. Everybody does, yeah. yeah. Um, so I thought, okay, well, you know, the, the chances of this guy actually having this house full of furniture he made are not likely. But I kept having people tell me that, and so I eventually um, contacted uh, the president of the board, Brad Emerson, and arranged a time to meet with him, and we walked through the house, and I just could not believe what was there. It was just... Um, the the furniture and, and that whole that whole thing um, being able to see all this furniture that was clearly made by the same hand and all the stuff Brad was telling me about the story just really um, I knew that this was a special story and so I started diving in deep uh, to try to piece together those those parts yeah okay so what is special about the story tell us a little about Fisher and uh, just a brief you know, who he was, how he came to Maine, and what is unique about this story that you came sure. to discover. So um, Fisher came to Blue Hill in 1796. Uh, he was a Harvard-trained minister, and so he did all his training, did a little bit of traveling around in Massachusetts, and then settled uh, in this at this ministry in this backwoods, you know, eastern frontier territory of Blue Hill. And he, you know, there was nothing here. Um, there was a notoriously recalcitrant population, as I put it in the book, um, that, you know, this was really backwards and it was not an ideal ministry for him. Uh, so when he came, he brought with him a bunch of different skills that he has, he had developed over the years. Uh, furniture making, uh, weaving, sign painting, a bunch of different things. And so he was able to offer that to his community. So what's special about this story in particular is when I was walking through the house with Brad Emerson, um, he was showing me the furniture, and I thought, okay, that would match. It does, it's not some factory furniture. It's not way too early or way too late. It's, a, it's the right time period. It was clearly rural furniture. It's not crazy high-style stuff that I wouldn't expect to see in Blue Hill. Um, but then he started telling me he referred to um, to the journals. He said, oh yeah, and then in the, his journals he mentioned, you know, the crest rails of his kitchen chairs and how he's making them and how he made these things and how mm-hmm. he makes tools. <laughs> I thought, well, wait, journals? Like, how, how many, what kind of journals do you have? And he, he told me that there were, th- that 
we, we have 35 years of daily journal entries where Fisher recorded every single thing he did. Um, all the stuff for the AM, you know, visited Mr. Witham and, you know, slaughtered my hog and PM visited so-and-so and wrote upon a sermon and, you know, put in hay. All, all these things that, um, this daily mundane stuff that uh, always, almost always just evaporates in, in history. And so we don't know what these people did. Um, so then in the context of pre-industrial cabinet makers, I just am not aware of any other story that we have that kind of, that level of documentation. Mm -hmm. Usually there's an account book, um, some receipts, some things like that, uh, but rarely ever is there any sort of, you know, journal entries describing the making of the furniture that's standing right in front of me in this house. Just incredible. Um, and then on top of that, so you have like, there's a bunch of furniture, these journals, 35 years of meticulous journal records, all of that matches up. I just couldn't believe it. And then he mentioned that there are tools, that there's a chest of tools. And um, long story short, very long story, I spent five years writing this book, uh, analyzing Fisher's uh, furniture making. Um, but long story short, Brad mentioned to me that there was this uh, descendant of Fisher who still lives in Maine, and he's he's a woodworker. He he makes tools. Uh, he's a toolmaker in Maine. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. That's interesting. I wonder who this guy is because I might like to reach out to him and see if he knows about Fisher, what kind of tools he makes and stuff. And he said, oh yeah, he's he's a toolmaker. What is his name? And he's trying to remember. And he said, yeah, it's down in. Um, it's down in Warren, I think. Nielsen. What's his name? Uh, Lee, Lee Nielsen? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait. I can imagine how you reacted to that. I just looked at him. I said, Tom Lee Nielsen? So, yeah, yeah, that's it. Tom Lee Nielsen. He's the descendant of Jonathan Fisher. Wow. Uh, oh, I, <laughs> I've heard of that guy. Yeah. So it was just incredible. And so long story short, I uh, reached out to Tom and also I had been in contact with Christopher Schwartz at Lost Art Press, and all of our paths converged so that uh, we went to go look at these tools for the first time all together. And it was just an incredible feeling to walk into that room and to look at that table full of the cabinet making tools. And it just was the beginning of this long journey into a, a serious work to, to write this book all about tying together the tools, the journals, and the furniture, putting all the million pieces together to, to draw out a, a coherent narrative out of all this evidence. So at that time, that's when you and Chris talked about you writing this book, and you actually began <clears throat> writing the book as Hands Employed to Write the Furniture Making of Jonathan Fisher, 1768 to 1847. Yep. And so how did you begin? Like, there is so much information on Fisher. As you said, he's, he's pretty singular in that we don't really know of anyone else making furniture with such a complete record about their life. Like with Fisher, we know what he looked like at several different times in his life because he painted self-portraits. Yep. We know what he was doing on a daily basis. We know what he was making. Um, how did you begin? Well, where I started, you know, because I, I could look at the furniture and there was clearly some other stuff mixed into the collection that was you know, some city vineyard mahogany separate thing altogether. So they really didn't fit the picture. 
So I was skeptical about that stuff. Um, but then uh, what I did, the first thing I did is I um, got a copy of the journals. Um, the journals were, so Fisher wrote these 35 years of journal entries in a phonetic shorthand that he developed himself when he was at Harvard. So this is, they look like hieroglyphics. You can't read it. The shorthand is something he came up with. I think it's a combination of Latin and Greek and Aramaic and like all these different languages and symbols and stuff all put together. And so he made the shorthand as a paper saving measure. Um, and also I, I probably it's sped up his writing, I would mm. imagine. Um, so all of these journals are in hieroglyphics essentially. Now it's interesting also as a side note, it's a phonetic alphabet. So that's, he called it his philosophical alphabet. It's a phonetic shorthand. So the, the way that the words are written is the way he pronounced these words. So there was a linguist uh, who studied uh, Fisher's uh, pronunciation of these words, and he, he was just blown away. He was able to you know, decode that and figure out how he pronounced all these words. This is 18th century pre-industrial pronunciation. Yep. It just does not exist yeah, around. It's just incredible. Remarkable. Yeah, so, so we know how Fisher <clears throat> pronounced words. We know what he looked like. We know that's all that stuff. So what I did is um, when the, the journals were translated, there was a, a little tiny code book that's maybe three inches by four inches, and it's filled with a few pages that provide the key to unlock the, wow. the code behind this uh, philosophical alphabet. <laughs> And so somebody um, in the mid 20th century translated it, typed it up, and so now we have a typed version of it um, in the Jonathan Fisher archives. And so I was able to photocopy all those pages. So I had my own copy and I started in with a highlighter, day one, huh. and started highlighting anything that had any remote connection to woodworking or wood or tools, and read all 35 years of uh, journal entries. Um, and began to, I had to make a big timeline to try to map all this stuff, to try to see the big picture. Cause it's just all these references to, you know, turning bobbins, doing this and that, painting this sign. It was really hard to keep track because of, you know, it took me a really long time to go through all the journals. So once I was able to put it in a timeline and sort of quantify what did he do in his life, what was the furniture making he accomplished? Then I could kind of step back and look at the furniture and start to compare it and look at the tools and compare it. Because in 1798, he was down in Dedham, Massachusetts at his uncle Josiah's house, who was a house right. And he was recording all of these different planes he was making and how he made a mandrel for his lathe and all that. All that record is there. And then I look at these tools and they're stamped Jonathan Fisher, 1798. And it is the profile that he describes making in the journal. So, you know, trying to connect all those dots was uh, quite a task. It took me several years to, to f see how they all relate. And that's, I, I'm always just more blown away by the completeness of this record. Can you contrast or compare what we know about Fisher with like other period makers? Like, yeah. there's a lot said about the Dominies, for example. We don't even know what they looked like, you mm -hmm. know? So just compare some other well-known makers that you've heard of or that's been circulating in the air and what we know about them compared to Fisher. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's... So I, I really like reading a lot of um, decorative arts scholarship, looking at furniture history. And usually, 
um, usually what these these scholars are focused on they're looking at breadcrumbs of evidence they're looking at this little trail they're trying to draw out of these little pieces of evidence who these makers were mm -hmm. and sometimes uh, like a recent book that was just published based on an account book they didn't even know that this maker was doing any work but then they realized they actually were the most important maker in that area and they had several journeymen employed so that's the kind of thing that usually happens very very important makers in history disappear completely because there's no evidence so when we find some furniture with a name written in it that's a big deal because you can start connecting dots or if we find um, like this account book or if we find receipts um, or if there are other like say there's a tool chest that survives um, to compare a few different things we have um, there's a tool chest uh, by that was made by a man named Benjamin Seaton uh, 1796, I think his tool chest was completed, and he filled out um, this inventory of the tool chest. He wrote it down. All the tools are there. They're mostly brand new tools. He never went into the trade. Wow. And we have a little bit of background information. So it's great. It's really awesome that we have this tool chest that survives in all this um, the written inventory. But who was this guy? Right. Why did he make this? Uh, why did he, you know, there's this whole story here that's not told. Also, he never made furniture beyond that, probably. So it's a cool tool chest, but that's it. So then the, I think the most, uh, the most complete survival of, a, of an 18th century shop would be the Domini shop that you mm -hmm. referred to at the Winterthur Museum. There is an 18th century cabinet making shop uh, I think over a thousand tools right. and there's furniture connected to them. There's a bunch of stuff. Um, so it's always been a really important uh, collection to look at. And what I think is interesting about that story, they have a lot of tools, the workbenches and a bunch of furniture that's attributed to them. But who were these guys and what made them tick? There are three generations here. We don't exactly know all that mm. much. Right. Um, we have a few pieces of evidence about, you know, probably conservative in this area, maybe what church they went to. But, you know, what, what really made them tick? Who were they? What drove them to their, to their work is something that's kind of just open to conjecture. Um, so what's unique about the Fisher story is it doesn't have a, a thousand tools that survive. When he wasn't employing journeymen, and so there's a huge body of furniture, but it's got a substantial a good amount of all of the pieces of the story hmm. the journals the furniture the tools all of that is this brings this complete picture and honestly the archives are full of stuff that I have not read it would take hmm. me an entire lifetime to read through all the personal letters that survive all of the sermons that are written in this this shorthand oh, wow. I mean it's just enormous so i had to at five years just kind of pull the so plug you've, and you've just kind of scratched the surface because yeah you know your focus on furniture yeah um and that allowed you to get to the the center of that part of the story but there's much more of the story still out there yeah and this is by the way this is the first time uh anyone has looked in detail at his furniture making hmm. so uh, a few different biographies have been written of, about him over the years and they all mention in passing, and he made his own furniture. Hmm. Isn't that neat? You know, so no, no furniture-focused uh, biographer looked at his life and said, okay, let's understand his furniture and his tools. 
Um, so the work that I did with this book was sort of, you know, just kind of paving the, the ground here to get started. I expect, I hope someone else takes up the mantle after me and, you know, in 10 years uh, explores this further and, and refines my own conclusions. Um, but this is the first time anyone's looked in detail at Fisher's furniture making. Um, and at Colonial Williamsburg, it's just, I, I have felt this whole time, just I've been blown away with what I've found. But it's really reassuring to me to share at Williamsburg. Yeah. And Don Williams, a friend of mine, and Christopher Schwartz and everyone I've been talking to, and at Williamsburg it was the same. People just could not believe. Charles Hummel, who wrote the Domini book, all about the Dominies, he said to me, how come we never knew about this? Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just an incredible uh, survival. So it's something I'm really excited about. So, so far, I'll say, what is your favorite part of Fisher's story that you've uncovered so far? Um, my favorite part of the Fisher story, um, honestly, I think for me, it's, it's kind of a, uh, well, it's twofold. One is the fact that this is a rural maker that survives. Uh -huh. What excites me most is that, you know, we have documentation of other makers and furniture, but usually they're just, they're urban makers. They're, um, they ran a shop and a bunch of people worked for them and they sold a bunch of furniture and that's why we know about them. Right. Usually the people that lived in rural areas, which was the majority of American history, yeah. people lived in rural areas, almost all those makers are anonymous makers. Their records are gone. Their tools are in antique shops all over the place. Their furniture is not signed. We have no idea. We mm -hmm. will never know who these people were. And so their legacy, their, um, the records of who these people were don't exist. Um, so, you know, these are the kinds of pieces that are sold at antique auctions and they're called primitives. They're country furniture and they'll never be connected to a maker because that stuff just didn't survive. And probably these makers didn't keep journal records. Um, and so I think that's what's really uh, incredible to me is that it's documenting a rural maker that wrote this stuff down and the community valued his work so much that they carefully preserved it. And so it's all there. Um, and then at a more personal level, it was just pretty incredible to see uh, a pre-industrial furniture maker's life lived mm. to see how he interacted in his community how he um, was able to uh, work with the local blacksmith matthew ray and what he commissioned from him and then as they had personal conflict because matthew ray was excommunicated from the church and there was this tension and argument and still um, they were uh, collaborating together it was just a pretty amazing thing to see um, that in a small community, they knew that they needed each other and they worked really hard. And that's the kind of stuff you don't see in decorative arts history books right. because it doesn't usually survive. Yeah. So. so how has studying Fisher changed or affected the way that you work in your shop and build furniture? <clears throat> um, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say it has radically changed the way I do woodworking. It has completely transformed uh, my work. It, when I started the book, I actually started the book before uh, I started Mortis and Tenon magazine, which is a really good idea. You should take on a big book project yeah. and then start a magazine in the midst yeah. of it. 
That's, <laughs> that's um, a wise way of going about it. <laughs> so I, I bring it up just to say the whole idea of what Mortis and Tenon is focused on, pre-industrial workmanship, understanding um, pre-industrial process, the seed for that was my look at Jonathan Fisher's work. I had spent a bunch of time looking at antique furniture in my conservation studio. I had furniture disassembled and I could seal that joinery. But all of these pieces were, um, they were sort of disconnected. They're, I don't know who made this piece. And so it's hard for me to get, have a sense of how does the work that I'm seeing in front of my eyes, uh, how does that contextualize? Who was this person? Is this just simply country furniture? Or yeah, I didn't really know how to understand who this person was and how they worked. But in Fisher, I saw it as a big cohesive story. I know his training. He was Harvard trained. He was, he was an intellectual giant, always doing a lot of uh, rigorous geometry and surveying. And was, he learned, I think he, it was like seven or eight languages. He was rigorous academics in, in academics. And so to see that kind of mind making vernacular furniture was really eye-opening to me. I saw rough surfaces on the undersides and I saw that and I realized, okay, so it's impossible for anyone to say rough surfaces on the backside were only done by naive makers right. or only for people who didn't know any better. This guy was very, very skilled and he did work. He made his own clock and all this kind of stuff that was very detailed, very crisp, very precise, made incredible um, woodcuts for the books that he wrote. This guy was very skilled. And so when he made furniture, he wasn't messing around and he made it, you know, he was very practical about it. Rough sawn backs or at best four planed backs um, of, of chests and insides. And I realized that's just because that's what hand tools look like. Uh -huh. That's the way this stuff has been made for thousands of years. And this is just hand tool work. And so I think that was really important and it really changed the way that I looked at woodworking. That if I want to um, you know, set machines aside and only use hand tools, I can't look at machine tolerances to inform what I'm supposed to be doing by hand. When you work by hand, you look to hand tolerances, right. those that were done that way. So I saw Fisher, I saw the way he worked. He worked very fast, it's, it's totally clear he worked fast. Um, because you see all the tool marks and you can read it like the brush strokes of a painter. You can see those fat, those, um, those tool marks that I tried to reproduce and I couldn't reproduce those tool marks slow. The only way to get those marks was to do it fast. Huh. Um, and that really opened my eyes to the records that he has of how fast he made all this furniture and the, the surfaces I'm looking at. And then the fact that I'm trying to reproduce that, trying to do that, and I can only do it fast. It just unlocked the whole world for me of pre-industrial work and how you would approach it and the mindset. And you really just got to, you know, uh, work fast, work hard. Um, and it's not about some taking some Zen moments to kind of reflect on your own life and to take these nice wispy shavings. And that is a, a, is a modern idea. Um, and so that's not what hand tools uh, have ever been used for. Um, so it, it totally transformed the way I looked at furniture, and it is the idea behind what Mortis and Tendon publishes. Right. You know. Yeah. 
we, uh, we like all those marks left behind because they carry so much information about process. So, uh, how, what does Fisher's life, uh, what can it communicate to uh, other modern makers today? What, if, if they say, get your book and read about it, what can his life, the way he lived, the way he worked, um, do for a modern maker? Well, you know, there as I mentioned, there were some things that for me personally really resonated and were very helpful. Um, and I think that that also translates to other people. Um, as I've been sharing this story and sharing this way of working, um, not being uh, bound to machine tolerances um, and understanding, you know, you can loosen your belts a little bit and just get the work done. And it's, it's the way it has always been done. Um, it's not sloppy. Um, to to see that message lived out in Fisher's life, I think it is very valuable uh, for everybody else. And the word that I keep hearing from people when we go to shows, you know, we do woodworking shows, and people come up and they say, this is just so liberating. <laughs> and that's the word yeah. I keep hearing from everybody. It's so liberating to not be so uptight and picky and try to work as if I was a machine. Right. I don't enjoy being that particular some people do some people really like the um the very detail obsessive trying to get everything yeah. as as absolutely perfect as they can every secondary surface as smooth as the yeah and, and that's that's fine um but what i have learned from fisher and what other people have uh you know echoed back to me is you don't have to work that way hmm. if you don't want to work that way if you just want to get the furniture done you can work the way it's been done for thousands of years. Uh -huh. You can work you know, in this way. So um, I think the, the primary thing that I've heard from other people is that they just feel so liberated. They can just feel free to enjoy their work and to work hard and not obsess over you know, minutia. Yeah. So where can we get the book? Um, well, uh, the book is available on our website mortisantenanmag.com um, and we'll put a link below that you can uh, follow up uh, so we we do ship uh, every week we ship out th this book and I sign it and all that kind of stuff um, otherwise the publisher is Lost Art Press and if you go on their website um, you can find that um, otherwise you could just uh, you know what I would recommend is you know jump on Google or something and, and search for Jonathan Fisher Hens Employed Aright or Joshua Klein, Jonathan Fisher, something like that, and read some about it and see uh, some of this work because, um, you know, whether you end up going onto the Lee Nielsen website to buy it or Lee Valley if you're in Canada or, you know, whatever, you can get it other places. But um, I think if you get online and you you kind of dig into what Fisher's life is like, um, I've, you know, when I was at Williamsburg, I had people say, you know, I'm not usually into history too much, and I... I like Lost Art Press books, but I wasn't sure that I would like this history stuff so much. Um, and so I planned on not buying the book. But then they saw the presentations in Virginia, and they said, this is just so fascinating and yeah. so cool. And they said, I'm going to go home and buy that book. Hmm. You know? And so I think it really um, is a way that people who, you know, when I was, um, when I was in school, 
I always fell asleep in history class. <laughs> you know, I, it, yeah. names and dates are not particularly useful. <laughs> right. Just to know those facts, names, dates. That's what do you? What's the take home with that? And I think um, when I approached this book, I was so deeply impressed with the value that the story brings to people, the in the shop value. And so I think that um, that I mean that was what my focus was with the book. This isn't. Um, I didn't write it uh, for academics to compare notes or something. I wrote it to woodworkers to show the immediate relevance of this work that was done, you know, over 200 years ago. Um, so yeah, I would recommend, uh, searching around on our, our website. Uh, also in the, the blog, we've talked about Fisher some. And, um, so I would look there. All right. Well, thank you. Thank and, you. uh, thanks everyone for listening to the Mortis and Tenon magazine podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, you can leave them below. Thank you for listening. Thanks.